Very good. Good afternoon. I'm Professor Henry Jenkins, uh, the director of the Comparative Media Studies program here at MIT. And it is my privilege to welcome you to the fifth of the Media and Transition Conferences, Creativity, Ownership, and Collaboration in the Digital Age. We have been enormously excited by the sheer number of papers we received this year and the quality and diversity. This is a gathering each year. We seem to increase the number of international participants and the range of disciplines represented on the program. And I think that we're in for an enormously exciting weekend that's going to deal with stuff that are at once topical and yet are deeply embedded in the traditions of the humanities and the history of media in the ways we like to think about it at MIT. Um, this event started as, as a, uh, almost a decade ago with David Thorburn, who will be moderating our first session, and I running the very first Media and Transition Conference. I'm curious, anyone here at the very first Media and Transition Conference? Fair number of, of people. Anyone here who's been at all five other than Fantastic. We've got a few who've been here at all, all of the events. That's, that's exciting. Uh, I should say, uh, so this year's event was organized jointly by the MIT Communications Forum and the MIT Comparative Media Studies Program. And we received assistance this year from the Center for Social Media at American University, which has helped to organize the session on intellectual property that you will see tomorrow the MacArthur Foundation, which has helped to underwrite the session on learning through remixing that will go on tomorrow night, and uh, the List Gallery, which has helped, where, where Bill Arning, the curator, the List Gallery has helped organize an artist session that will go on on Sunday morning. So all three of those groups helped collaborate in terms of time and resources to make possible the conference for today. I should say, as the director of the Comparative Media Studies Program, the first conference marked the launch of the Comparative Media Studies program. It was the gathering that commemorated our launch. And it's, so it's very exciting to see both how much this conference has grown and how much the CMS program has grown through the years. We're now a program with six major research uh, centers around it, doing a variety of things uh, in the areas of new media literacy, in the areas of consumer relations, uh, games and education, humanities computing and civic media, that we're a program that's trying to combine a lot of the principles that are shaping this conference. And it's great to have a chance to talk to you this morning. So I'm going to begin the conference with some loose opening remarks, a series of snapshots, as it were, of our present moment of media and transition around this question of appropriation, creativity, collective identity. And I'm going to begin with this guy, Jonathan Latham. Uh, who many of you will know, a very distinguished contemporary writer who's written books such as Media, Men and Cartoons, The Fortress of Solitude, and being, you know, I sort of think of Latham as the fanboy, the poet laureate of fanboy lit. You know, he's someone who draws deeply on popular culture in his own writing, but turns it into something that speaks to a literary audience, that has the respectability of the New York Times book review and so forth. And, and the aside, he writes for anthologies like Give Our Regard to the Atom Smashers, where he talks about his passion for Jack Kirby uh, and for, for comics. So a little while back, Latham published in Harper's Magazine a very interesting piece, a piece that consisted entirely of sampled material, sampled material designed to focus attention on issues of intellectual property. And indeed, Lewis Hyde, who's going to be here on the next panel, and myself were two of the people who were sampled and appropriated by Latham for this piece for Harper's Magazine. And I had a number of people come up to me, sort of say, 
aren't you concerned that people are taking your intellectual property and using it against your will? I have to say, I was totally gaga as a fanboy over the fact that Latham had used this writing in that way. And it's exactly the use of this material to sort of challenge intellectual property as we currently understand it that's part of the reason I wrote the book to begin with, and to argue that we need to reassess fair use in terms of fan participation was a central thrust behind Textual Poachers when it was published a long time ago. Well, this last week, Latham was interviewed by Annalee Newitz for Wired Magazine, in which, among other things, he got into discussion of fan culture and advocated that he would very much like to be included in a slash story. So Latham would very much like to be in the center of the sort of homoerotic fan literature that has been sort of the, the cause celebre or the hot point, depending how you look at it, in the disputes between media producers and consumers. As far as I know, he's the first media producer I can think of who's willingly stood up to the plate and said he'd very much like to be slashed. <laughs> now he noted in discussing this, this cartoon that someone had already done, which effectively Latham was slashed with Michael Chabon in this cartoon that has been widely reproduced, and they were represented as a dynamic literary duo. So the idea of Latham being, wishing to be slashed is interesting. So let's take that as data point number one. Data point number two is this guy, Stephen Colbert, right, whose name and image is all over the American media. I don't know how well he's known. Outside of the United States, he's a political satirist. He does television news shows and so forth. And, and he recently went on his program and asked essentially to be mashed up, to re be resampled. And uh, oops, let me get the right screen here up. This is part of a segment that Colbert did recently on the show, in which Colbert was commenting on the fact that many politicians are unwilling to appear on the Colbert show because they're afraid they're going to be re-edited. So to respond to that criticism, what Colbert did was create a segment specifically to be re-edited by the audience. And so what's fascinating about this, this is the segment that's designed to be re-edited, to be mashed up, to be sampled. And as you watch it, the humor comes from our anticipation of how it will be remixed. It is not just a linear and coherent statement, but as you watch it, you laugh because you can imagine things you could do with the material he's producing. Speaking of Congress being cowards, recently the Congressional... I have invited... Yeah, my interview, Congressman Steve Cohen said, quote, he has the advantage of editing. And Congresswoman Linda Sanchez said that Colbert is, quote, going to edit you so you look foolish. Oh, really? I didn't need to edit Robert Wexler to get him to say this. I enjoy cocaine because it's a fun thing to do. <laughs> I... <laughs> I didn't see the edit point there. I'm sorry. How did I manipulate that? But in the spirit of fairness, folks, I am offering Rahm Emanuel and you, the nation, the chance to edit an interview of me any way you like. I even sat down with an attack dog of the liberal media, Gwen Ifill of PBS. And you know what? I don't think I have a thing to worry about. Jimmy, let's put the knife in their hands. Stephen, thank you for sitting down with me. You have no idea how many politicians and reporters have been waiting for an opportunity just like this. So, do your dirtiest. I will. As a war supporter, how do you react to all the criticism? There are people who say, the troops are stupid, or the troops are idiots. I want to go on record with that. 
I'm not one of those people who says those things. Interesting answer. President Bush, great president or the greatest president? Do you have anything better than greatest? Just great or greatest. Put me down for greatest. I want to get your thoughts on some of the presidential candidates. Shoot. Barack Obama. Theoretically, now, if I'm a Republican, and I'm not, I'm an independent, I am afraid of Barack Obama. He's clean-ing up Washington. I'm sorry, I got a little frog in my throat there. He's articulate on a number of issues important to average Americans. Very scary to white house people who want to <laughs> Plus, he promises he'll get our budget back in the black. Black? I don't think so. We're at war. All right. <laughs> Hillary Clinton. I've got to admit, she's got a strong stance on New Orleans. She's been very outspoken about building more and better levees because clearly what they need down there is a huge dike. Huge dike. But, and it's a big butt. It would be a disaster if Hillary were elected. Worst president ever. Okay, I've got a list of words I'd like you to say. <laughs> would you uh, mind reading those for me? Fine. And could you hold the list down out of the camera shot? <laughs> oh, all right. Thank you. Shaved. Dwarf. Lubricant. <laughs> Salty. Musky. Kill all, milky, Dick Cheney, discharge, smack, devour, drunken McDonald's employee, every American's duty, rabbit sack. How was that? It, it couldn't have been better. Now, if you were going to suck air out of a helium balloon, how would that look? Oh, you want me to mime it or something? Sure. Okay, I guess, I guess I'd untie it. First, and then, uh, and I guess I just suck in the air. <laughs> you want me to suck it all in? Yeah, 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 just like that. My voice would be high, very high, which is fun. I love getting high voice. Thank you. Okay, is there anything else you want to say? Do you say have any hobbies? Yes, I love cock. Fighting. Love it. Can't get enough cock fighting. It is like a hunger. Insatiable. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for sitting down with me. It was my pleasure. It was my pleasure. I'd love to see what you wizards do with that. <laughs> Folks, this interview. All right. So it's, it's a special, it seems to me, a really interesting kind of comedy that assumes on us understanding mashups, remixing, sampling well enough to anticipate exactly where the cut points fall. And the punchlines depend on sort of imagining possible uses of that material. This is, of course, not uncharacteristic for Co Stephen Colbert, who earlier had done a similar contest involving green screen and asking people to insert him his green screen image into other footage. And I'll look briefly at a sample of what viewers created there. Oh no! I'm being attacked by a space monster! I'd better use my lightsaber to fight it!
That's a sort of sample of what happens around grassroots creativity as the, the Colbert stuff on the first time when it was released. We're now seeing a large number of these new re-edits of the recent Colbert crop up on YouTube. Of course, Colbert is the comedian who was made arguably by YouTube. The, his appearance at the Washington Press Club dinner where he made fun of President Bush while he was a few feet away was panned by the national news media, got very little attention, and then reached much greater visibility as it circulated via YouTube. And Colbert also has been playing around with Wikipedia in a famous incident. He talked about Wikipedia on the air, urged everyone to go and change the definition of elephant on Wikipedia. And I talked to Jerry Wells, uh, Jimmy Wells, the sort of visionary behind Wikipedia, and he described how they organized their community to do battle with Colbert's fans to keep and preserve the integrity of the definition of elephant. Uh, and, so it sort of is an he's sort of an interesting figure who understands something of this new media landscape. So it makes it all the more interesting that Viacom recently announced that they were moving some 20,000 clips from YouTube, including hundreds of clips of the Stephen Colbert show. And what sort of amounts to a classic example of one division of the company thinking in very different ways than another, a kind of split personality it reflects the current age as, as corporations begin to think about how they enable participation by inviting remixing and recirculation of material at the same time that they're trying to hold on to old intellectual property regimes which are designed to keep our hands off of their, their content. And so this contradiction, I think, is nowhere more visible than it is around Colbert, but it's, in, it's sort of endemic to this present moment in which sites like YouTube have emerged as sort of the poster child for a new idea about participatory culture. It's a sort of the embodiment of the mixed media ecology that Yohai Binkler has talked about fairly recently, the space where amateur and commercial content not only coexist, but nonprofit, educational, governmental content is circulating through. Another poster child for this movement might be Second Life, the world literally being built by its consumers, a world that sort of can be whatever people want it to be. So the idea of Second Life may be more powerful at the moment than its realization, but it nevertheless is a driving idea that I think shapes things like the coverage that's been going on in recent years. And I don't even, these covers get referenced so many times now, scarcely even worth describing them. But knowing that the news media in the last year has sort of picked up on this idea that participatory culture is a driving force in our society. We now live in a moment where there's a kind of very complex set of relationships between commercial content and amateur content, between, say, the release of games, their engines being used for machinima, machinima gain, grassroots project gaining the visibility that something like Red versus Blue has achieved, that leading into MTV2 creating a music mods program that uses machinima tools to produce its content. This also becomes part of advertising campaigns. So Aureo last summer ran a contest where people recorded their own version of the Oreos jingle. And I'll play just a second of this uh, content here. 
uh, the winning comp the winning performance. Oh, 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 ice cold milk and an Oreo cookie, they forever go together. What a classic combination when a dark delicious cookie meets an icy cold sensation. Like the one and only creamy crunchy chocolate, O-R-E-O. So the fascinating thing about the Oreos contest is it had contestants doing, redoing the jingle on almost every conceivable music genre. So you have reggae, you have hip hop, you see country westerns versions of this jingle. The mistake I think they made was choosing a single winner. That is the whole power of user generated content would have been to diversify this, this, this campaign for different consumer groups who aligned with different kinds of audience participation. We see a group like AOK Go that has sort of made its reputation again off YouTube and music videos now inviting consumers to do their own version of their video that was made to look like a backyard video in the first place. Not everyone gets a clue. Veronica Mars recently launched and folded a contest where viewers would create their own previews. Unfortunately, they were not allowed to use any footage from the program. Again, we come back to <laughs> this contradiction. That if you can make a preview for Veronica Mars and not show anything that was actually copyrighted by Veronica Mars, then you could go ahead and enter the contest. Kind of confusing. Star Trek, on the meantime, is collaborating very closely with fan-produced episodes for the web, which involve original writers, original special effects people, borrowed props, borrowed costumes, which are, but which are unauthorized adventures of the cast and crew of the original <coughs> Enterprise. So what we're seeing, well, educators are beginning to recognize the value of this participatory culture, one where there's low barriers to artistic expression and civic engagement, where there's strong support for creating and sharing what you create with others, where there's some kind of informal mentorship, where members feel their contributions matter, and there's some degree of social connections between members. That this is a new way that educators are thinking about the power of informal learning. And some of the work that the MacArthur Foundation is involved with the digital learning and youth reflects this new understanding. Advertisers are beginning to recognize that if they design powerful <laughs> templates, that people will then begin to use those templates on the web, and we can start to see the, the spreading out of this PC versus Mac campaign. has been picked up and used in a variety of ways. Uh, this is now the PlayStation versus the Wii version of this. Uh, so the interesting question advertisers are struggling with is as this appropriation takes place, is when does the brand start to fade away? Now that we're totally two different product categories, there's no direct reference of PC versus Mac, but people who see this template on the web still recognize it as part the advertising campaign. And this is part of how Madison Avenue is beginning to think about messages spread. So what happened here, where we, some of you have seen the 1984 ad for the Mac was re-edited to include Hillary Clinton as Big Brother, and then followed up the following week with a re-edit that put Barack Obama as Big Brother, in stuff that seems to have been loosely but not directly connected to the new presidential campaign. So we're seeing politics begins to take on <laughs> these notions of reappropriation. And we're seeing people constructing images uh, through appropriation to comment on current events. Uh, the net neutrality movement is one that's used extensive borrowings of images and iconography from popular culture to motivate people to fight for their right to participate in the society. Not all of this is pretty to look at. And I think one of the things we want to think about as democracy moves into an election cycle with blacks, with women, with Catholics, with Mormons, with divorcees, and so forth as presidential candidates is that we're going to see things like this, Barack Obama chauffeuring Ms. Hillary, or this one, Barack Hussein Obama as Borak. Uh, so the language of popular culture is going to shape our politics for better and for worse in this next election cycle. 
And as a world where fan culture, of course, is thriving, where fans' ability to insert themselves into narrative becomes a worldwide phenomenon. So here are American kids dressed up like characters from Japanese anime, and here are Japanese kids dressed up like characters from The Matrix. Uh, so this is a global process. As this is going on, I think we're starting to see backlash against this level of participation. This is a book Andrew Keane is publishing this year, The Cult of the Amateur, which is trying to make an argument for the dangers to culture, the, the, the destructive force of participatory culture as amateur-produced appropriative media drowns out and destroys the base for commercial and professional media. And so I think it's going to be an important book, one that I profoundly disagree with in parts, but I think one that's a debate we really need to engage with if we're going to make the case for this as the future. So I'm going to end there with just a few connections to the rest of the conference. It is like, I want to use that to set up this, the current moment a little bit. What's going on in our culture? The kind of churn that's emerged in this. The kind of way in which remixing practices cut across almost every sphere of modern activity and become part of the ways we think about what it is to create and consume at the present moment. Now having said that, the thrust of media in transition is this is not new. This has happened before. This is part of a larger dialogue or discussion about media change that the folk logic of folk culture was already a logic of uh, appropriation and transformation. The culture is long built on itself. The culture quotes itself, collaborates with itself, folds itself back, holds itself up as a mirror in the mirror. And this is part of the way culture change has already taken place. The digital media is enabling this stuff to distribute and circulate at a more dramatic rate. It enables new pools, tools for doing it. It allows new distribution channels for achieving it, but it is in some sense a new layer on top of a larger cultural logic. And part of what we want to do this weekend is to think both about the present and the past and try to understand media change in a larger system. So I wanted a kind of token of this. This is a uh, Russian embedded doll with Harry Potter on the outside. And I wanted to sort of suggest that this be a way we think about both the continuity of culture. The Russian embedded dolls go back hundreds of years. It's a folk practice and the ways in which new content folds into it and new cultural practices shape that, that image. So as we think about the Russian folding doll, it's symbolizing both continuity and change. I think it carries us in as a spirit into the discussion we're going to be having this weekend. So let me end my formal remarks there. And if we can get the panelists up for the next session, we'll be ready to go. Yes. Yeah. I'll introduce you and introduce second wife, which should be coming on about now.
<laughs> Not really at all, but I do know how to dress. <laughs> I think we're ready up here. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. If uh, we can set quiet back down, we'll get started for the next session. So, I mentioned Second Life in passing in the last session. But I should note that we are, for the first time, broadcasting the plenary events of this conference via Second Life. So there are hopefully people online now who are watching these events and proceedings from several different locations, both one provided by GSDNM advertising on their Idea Island, and the other from the New Media Consortium's Island, uh, both of which are providing opportunities for people who could not be here physically to hear these events. I should also mention the plenary events will be webcast after the event and submitted via, the, via our website and hopefully distributed by blogs by people here and elsewhere. And we're asking speakers, if, if at all possible, to share with us the, written, the digital versions of your papers so that we can distribute those via the website. So this becomes something that's larger than just this exciting gathering in this room, that it reaches other people. And we know from previous conferences that this website gets heavily used in, in teaching around the world. So that said, it's now my privilege to, to introduce my colleague, my friend, my mentor, David Thorburn, who uh, helped along, who helped, who was one of the key figures behind the development of the original Media in Transition conference. He was the director of the Media in Transition project, who co-edited with me the, uh, the two books, uh, Democracy and New Media, and uh, the Rethinking Media Change, The Aesthetics of Transition. He is a professor in the literature program at MIT and a, a mainstay of the comparative media studies program. So let me turn it over to him. Thank you, Henry. Uh, I'm very happy to see so many eager faces at the very start of a conference. And I think it, uh, Henry's right, I think, to feel excitement about the level of energy in the, in, in the uh, audience already. Uh, we're also very happy to have repeaters, folks who have begun to treat the Media and Transition conferences as a semi-regular experience for them. We hope that will continue and enlarge. And I do think that, that there's a kind of principle of accretion operating here in the sorts of conversations we've been having over the years. And my hope is that that will crystallize and distill itself in our conversations in this conference. Uh, my, uh, my primary job is to moderate today's session, uh, and I, I will get to that uh, very quickly and introduce the speakers, but I can't resist making a couple of introductory remarks as well, really as a kind of footnote or, or reinforcement of the observations that uh, my friend Jenkins just made to you. It, it seems to me that there are a couple of uh, uh, ancillary points that are, that, are, that, are, that are worth emphasizing and help to explain the rationale for our project, really for the comparative media studies program itself, and certainly for these conferences. One way to think about it is to 
confront the, uh, uh, an issue that all of us in this room, I think, have, have faced again and again, whether we belong to what might be called the futurist school, people who are uh, preoccupied by and centered on contemporary and future events, or whether, like me, we belong to sort of the backward-looking school of traditional literary scholars, anthropologists, folklorists, who have become aware of the extent to which there are uh, complex and and uh, uh, potentially very instructive analogies between older cultural practices and older cultural behaviors and the kinds of things that we're uh, seeing so dramatically in our emerging digital environment. So one way to focus the problem then is to, or not the problem, but to focus the issue is to say that this dialogue between the future and the past is a, is a critical one, obviously one that's very important to the health of the future. Uh, and and uh, one of the functions or one of the purposes of the media and transition conferences and of the comparative media program more generally is to try to sustain and clarify concretize, uh, strengthen that conversation between the past and the future. Uh, it's not a matter of our falling into the delusion, I think, that, uh, that the past uh, uh, utterly predicts the future, but it is also not a matter of pretending, as so many futurists do, that the past has no bearing on the future. What we want is some sort of mature, complex recognition that there are lessons to be learned from the past and that, uh, uh, and that there are many sites or locations in the past in which there are very powerful potential connections or instructive analogies between the moment of cultural and media transition we find ourselves in now and previous historical moments. So that idea of a conversation between past and present and sustaining it in a rigorous and serious way is one of the deep missions of the media and transition conferences and of our academic program in media study at MIT. I, I, there's a second point, I think, that is worth reminding everyone of. And some, some folks actually may still resist this idea. I think it's much more widely accepted now than it was even 15 or 20 years ago. And that is to say, I think one consequence of the kind of dialogue we're, that, that we're talking about, this conversation between past and present that has begun in such, in, in such dramatic ways in so many different uh, academic fields uh, and is sustained by our conferences is that w one, I think one conclusion we can draw from this or one insight that has begun to have greater and greater power is a recognition that there has been a breakdown in the old confidence that the categories of high and popular culture are meaningful categories. That one of the things we've begun, and I think this is a real historical advance, one of the things we've begun to recognize and one of the insights I think that we should build on and elaborate more fully is the deep recognition that, figure, that, that, that central figures in the high culture museum, the most revered and central figures in the high culture museum, in fact, folks like Shakespeare and Homer, actually in their own time belong to what we must call something like the popular culture. That they were so, that the, and, and the implications of this idea are still not fully understood, still have not been fully absorbed, either by traditional forms of scholarship or by the digitally inflected awareness that so many people who write about contemporary and future events uh, may be uh, uh, interested in. That is to say, it is an immensely enabling and complex idea to recognize that in his own day, Shakespeare was the equivalent of what, say, television is in our society, or what the movies had been in the studio era. And the full, ram and the full implications of this idea that, that uh, objects that have been revered for centuries, figures, writers, 
uh, uh, subject matter, texts, textual systems that have been admired for years and for, 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 for generations by, by, by Western culture may, in fact, in their origins, belong to exactly the same culture that the uh, Japanese anime belongs to. It's an incredibly dangerous and complicated idea that we're still unpacking. And I want to uh, emphasize its importance here. My sense is that it's a kind of problem we will, we will uh, be confronting again and again, both in this conference and subsequently. And a third point, and I'll stop after this point, uh, it seems to me that another deep insight that has begun to be generated by, the con by, by many different sorts of scholarship uh, concerned with the question of the continuities and discontinuities between past and present, between older textual systems and contemporary textual systems is this. Another thing that has broken down, if the old taste hierarchies are now very problematic, if we no longer unconsciously and, and, and uh, 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 without reflection embrace some notion of elite culture and popular culture, we recognize the, the inadequacy of such a conception of cultural practice. There's a second point, I think, that has undermined what had been uh, very widespread belief in, in uh, traditional fields um, uh, about texts, and that is the idea that the text is some finished thing. I think one of the implications of our current work, uh, of much current work, of much current literary work and work in, uh, in traditional fields as well as work in emerging digital forms has suggested a very opposite idea. The idea is that textual systems are always in process, that they're always ongoing, that they are unfinished, that they never reach a definitive state, that they undergo various kinds of transmogrifications and transformations as cultural circumstances and cultural environments change and as the uh, mechanisms for communication change as new technologies emerge. Uh, so the idea that there's some sort of finished text, that there's some sort of a final version of a text that, that, is, that, that, that distills the essence of the text and, and, and any variations that come after it are, are ancillary or minor and the, 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 the materials that may lie behind that particular embodiment of the text and that feed into it are also recognized in this older dispensation as secondary. I think we have a new idea of what a text is that is beginning to emerge, this notion that, that a text is a, is a site of negotiation, is a site of process, is a site of sort of ongoing discussion. And if we think systematically and uh, historically about this idea, what we will recognize, of course, is that we have defined the essential condition of the Homeric oral epic which was, of course, never in a finished state. There was never any finished performance of the Homeric tales. So what we might say is that the founding texts of Western civilization belong to a textual category or, or, or engage in what we might call textual behavior that make it resemble something much closer to an ongoing unfinished television series or an ongoing discourse about uh, 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 centered on, 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 on particular forms of popular culture that elaborate themselves over, over time over, across different media systems, maybe even across generations, uh, that the founding text of Western culture seems to embody principles of that kind, seems to me a principle of great importance that we need to explore more fully. Well, those are my introductory remarks. I hope you'll find them uh, uh, useful and, and uh, uh, helpful in our discourse for the rest of this conference. And it's now my happy obligation, responsibility, to introduce our speakers and to define our, our, our procedures. I will moderate in a relatively rigorous way, and the speakers have been warned about this. I will keep time. Uh, they will each be asked to make a, 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 a brief 
uh, uh, presentation lasting a maximum of eight minutes. I will warn them at six and at seven minutes and shut them off at uh, around eight minutes. I'll be generous if they look very miserable and insist that they're almost ready to finish. But we're going to enforce the time, the time frames rigorously to allow for real discussion. Uh, after, our, after our speakers have made their presentations, we will have a, a brief uh, uh, 15 or 20 minutes of discourse amongst the panelists, and then we will open the conversation to the audience. We will uh, work in, uh, in, in uh, a chronological order, beginning first with our, with our uh, uh, Elizabethan and medieval scholar, then moving to our contemporary poet and writer, and finally ending with our specialist in hip hop. Thomas Pettit, in the middle there, who will speak first, is an associate professor at the Institute of Literature, Media, and Cultural Studies in the University of Southern Denmark. He lectures on late medieval and early modern literature and theater and on folk traditions. His contribution to our last Media and Transition Conference will be uh, memorable to all of you who were there. And I've been told by a number of colleagues that uh, a formulation he offered in our final session has been copied by many people at the, at, uh, who attended the conference. Uh, some of you may recall this. At, on the basis of our general discussion, Tom suggested that perhaps we needed to think of ourselves as committed to a contextual formalism. And I think it still is a very resonant and wonderful way of describing a kind of the intellectual commitments of many people at the previous conference and presumably many people here. So Tom's already made wonderful contributions to our media and transition discourse. And I'm very grateful for the fact that he has returned for this conference. Lewis Hyde, over here. Uh, uh, is uh, uh, the Thomas Professor of Creative Writing at Kenyon College and a fellow of the Berkman Center on Internet Soci and Society at Harvard. He's a poet and essayist whose current book project is a defense of the cultural commons. And he has a book that has been very influential in literary and cultural study called Trickster Makes This World, published in 1999. Our final speaker, Craig Watkins, on the, on the uh, far left, uh, my far left, writes about race, youth, media, and technology. His most recent book is Hip Hop Matters, Politics, Pop Culture, and the struggle for the soul of a, of a movement. He is now working on a book that examines the social consequences of young people's changing media behaviors. He teaches at the University of Texas at Austin. We begin our discourse today with Tom Pettit. Thank you very much, David. Uh, Fellow conversationalists, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there is a handout, uh, but rather than break the rhythm of the session by checking if everyone has one, uh, I, it's, it's, its essentials will be reproduced in my, uh, in my PowerPoint slides, uh, very elementary by the standards that we've uh, been established already, uh, and there'll be plenty of copies that you can take with you uh, as you leave if you find it interesting. Now, if it's not too pretentious to give such a short presentation a title, I've, I've, I've called mine Before the Gutenberg Parenthesis, Elizabethan American Compatibilities. And that's because I've come here today to tell you what I find Elizabethan about the American media uh, and what I find American, especially perhaps African-American, about Shakespeare. Uh, a couple of conference papers I've seen from the program, a couple of conference papers point out that several of the key terms in the call for papers for MIT-5 
sampling and remixing, borrowing and reshaping, appropriating and recontextualizing, accurately characterize the way that some certainly of my students now think they should write academic essays. Uh, <laughs> constructing, we folklorists say quilting, uh, an essay out of diverse materials uh, accessed on the internet and manipulated by digital technology. Well, that's all very awful, but uh, by the same token, by the same token, no generation of students I have taught uh, are better qualified than these students to appreciate Shakespeare, since those same key terms accurately characterize significant processes by which plays were achieved uh, and by which plays were treated in the Elizabethan theater. Now, when my students do this, they are reprimanded for plagiarism, a fate which they share with the occasional Elizabethan dramatist, uh, the most notorious instance being precisely the 1592 attack by Robert Greene on a provocative new rival, a mere player who considered himself the only shake scene in the country and who thinks he is as well able to bombast out a blank verse as the university-trained playwrights. Bombast is the uh, cotton that they put into their sleeves and their, their breeches in those padded Elizabethan clothes. Uh, really, this fellow is merely an upstart crow beautified with our feathers. Well, just as my students seem to have something in common with Shakespeare, so I have something in common with Robert Greene, uh, we are both speaking from within what I've called the, the Gutenberg parenthesis. And inside the Gutenberg parenthesis, it's felt that cultural products including stage plays and student essays, should be original, independent, autonomous compositions, the individual achievement, and the individual property of those who create them. So Green was castigating a Shakespeare who operated within a cultural system, the Elizabethan popular theater, which was still on its way into the Gutenberg parenthesis. Uh, which was a, a, a popular entertainment business where, in which sampling and the rest were still legitimate. I am castigating students uh, who are in all other respects being trained to operate within a cultural system, the digital media, which is already, way, already on its way out of the Gutenberg parenthesis, uh, an internet culture where sampling and the rest are becoming legitimate. Well, in, uh, in true Elizabethan digital fashion, I have happily plagiarized the term Gutenberg parenthesis from my colleagues in literature, media, and cultural studies at the University of Southern Denmark, uh, who are developing a research project uh, with this theme as its, as its title. They, in turn, of course, are vastly uh, indebted to McLuhan's Gutenberg galaxy. But I'm particularly attracted by the way that the term parenthesis uh, suggests development over time. Uh, there was a before, a during, and an after. And the implications are that the after and the before have more in common with each other uh, than either has with what comes in between. A parenthesis interrupts a sentence, uh, and when the parentheses are over, the sentence resumes where it left off. And this notion of our paradoxically advancing into the past has also been anticipated by others. Uh, in 1995, Leosinonoglu Marcus published an article with the striking title Cyberspace Renaissance, uh, suggesting that the collapse of the fixed authoritative text 
which has been provoked by internet and digital, digital technology, effectively takes us back to the Renaissance period, a time when texts had not yet, not quite, become as fixed and authoritative as they have been in the interim. And then secondly, John Miles Foley <coughs> has both uh, continued and extended uh, the, the studies of, of Milman, Parry, and Amber, Albert Bates-Lord uh, in, into the study of oral, oral narratives in his Center for Studies in Oral Tradition at the University of Missouri, uh, and he's broken radical new ground in establishing a Center for E-Research. And then these come together in his Pathways project, which is designed, and I quote from his website, uh, to illustrate and explain the fundamental similarities between humankind's oldest and newest thought technologies, oral tradition, and the internet, or as he says, OT and IT. Both technologies thrive on morphing, on open sharing among a broad-based community, and they both lack the concept of, lovely phrase, the freestanding, complete-in-itself item. That's at the very heart of the book and page medium. Well, in borrowing the Gutenberg parenthesis from my colleagues, I've done no more and no less uh, than Shakespeare did to kids' Hamlet or the traveling players did to Shakespeare's Hamlet. I've made it my own. Uh, and there's no time for the detail, but I provided this second diagram. There's an even better one on the handout, bigger and better one on the handout, uh, to show that I've at least tried, made the effort to make it all my very own. For me, the difference between the world within the Gutenberg parenthesis and the world without, be it before or after, is in the first instance determined by the respective significance accorded to the composition of a given work on the one hand, as opposed to its performance on the other hand. And in the second instance, the degree to which either process, composition or performance, involves the introduction of material from other works, other performances. So at the center of the parenthesis, theoretically, the essential unit is the original composition, owes nothing to other works, everything to the individual creator. Performance is the zero option of passive reproduction, typically as a printed book. At the other extreme, the extremes outside the parenthesis, the unit is the traditional performance, a performance which owes something to earlier performances, but much to other performances, material coming in from the side. I'm not certain I've put the brackets uh, in the handout in exactly the right place, but making that diagram, which took a very long time, uh, has um, helped me to think about uh, exactly where those parentheses belong. This is one of my uh, Elizabethan-American compatibilities. If you tell me that the modern media are moving into a post-parenthetical realm where the distinction between author and performer is getting problematic and where the term plagiarism is disputably appropriate to the new circumstances for one composition's, one performance's redeployment of material from others, then I'll tell you that Elizabethan theatre, in which Shakespeare was both an author and a performer, uh, was a, a pre-parenthetical mirror image of where you are at. And I invoke, among several quotations on the handout, uh, the perception of the critic Douglas Brewster uh, about the way, the way Elizabethan plays, quote, without acknowledgement. Uh, that requires us, he means us within the parenthesis, uh, to consider how well our notions of property, language, and textuality apply to early modern drama. That fits exactly right. <laughs> I shall explore this more closely in my paper at a breakout session on authorship later this afternoon, and I'll conclude here uh, by just hinting at a second Elizabethan-American compatibility, 
uh, one which puts Shakespeare and Americans on the same side of the parenthesis, uh, of the Gutenberg parenthesis. Within a given culture, not all subcultures, not all cultural systems enter the Gutenberg parenthesis at the same time. What the Elizabethans called poetry had pretty well, by 1600, entered the Gutenberg parenthesis. And before the end of Shakespeare's career, uh, the theatre too was making significant steps into the Gutenberg parenthesis, but other systems made the transition much later. And there came a time early in the 19th century when people operating within the Gutenberg parenthesis started to find the culture of people operating outside the Gutenberg parenthesis really rather interesting. They first called it popular antiquities, then they called it folklore. My own preference is vernacular traditions. In most cases, Scottish ballads, German folk tales, Irish superstitions, English legends. Uh, popular antiquities seems about the right word. Uh, these are part of our heritage from the past, but they are not entirely viable now, haven't got much to offer to the future. But within the English-speaking world, as a, as a result of historical circumstances which make the term vernacular distressingly appropriate, African-American vernacular traditions, they maintained their vigor and their cultural relevance deep into the 20th century. It's hard to imagine anything more vital, anything more living and more significant uh, in modern popular culture than the rock, the rap, the reggae, which has sprung from those traditions. The situation is effectively uh, strikingly summed up by the 1969 statement of an activist, which depicts white and American, African-American young people being respectively acculturated in, in ways appropriate to their different adult environments in which they would have to survive. We play the dozens for recreation like white folks play Scrabble. Scrabble for the white folks within the Gutenberg parenthesis, uh, where success went to the good student in a world of texts, the dozens for African-Americans outside the parenthesis, where success went to the man of words uh, in a world of speech. We'll hear more of this from Craig Watkins. Yes? OK. That's fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> have no PowerPoint, I just talk. <laughs> so this title was Henry's, and I've been scratching my head about it. Uh, folk culture in this context for me means uh, community protocols that arise without s the structure or protection of law. And I'm going to give some food for thought out of the 18th century. That speaks, I hope, to this question. First, a particular example. Um, Around, 18, around 1733, a guy in London named Jester Moore Hall invented what's called an achromatic telescope doublet. This is a telescope lens made of two kinds of glass such that it gets rid of a bothersome effect in converging lenses called color flare. So Hall invents this, and the first, he had the first doublets made by some opticians in London. And before too long, this innovation of halls became common knowledge among instrument makers in that town. Now, neither hall nor the instrument makers revealed this trick to anyone else. It was a trade secret. So it happened that, therefore, 25 years later, a second man named John Dolland reinvented the telescope doublet. And Dolland did not keep it a secret. He patented it. 
and he manufactured achromatic lenses, and he charged royalties to other people who were doing the same thing. So a court case emerged, instrument makers in London saying, why should we pay you royalties? We've known about this for a long time. Dolland saying, well, I have a patent. So Dolland won this case. The court opinion declared that the commercial advantage that you get for having a patent is a reward not for having made the invention, but for having disclosed it to the public. So that when the limited period of patent has expired, the public has the free access of this new idea in perpetuity. In the words of the court, this is a quote, 1750-something, it was not the person who locked up his invention in his writing desk that ought to profit from such an invention, but he who brought it forth for the benefit of mankind. So I take this mid-18th century to be an inflection point in the history of knowledge communities, and particularly around this issue of trade secrecy. Guilds and trades um, had a knowledge economy by which you kept your knowledge secret, sometimes for centuries, uh, in order to maintain your trade advantage. Um, on the other side of that is something slowly emerging in that century, later to be called perhaps the Republic of Letters. This is one norm replacing another. Patents are a formal, overt, legal way of organizing this conversion from the earlier trade secrecy protocols into what might be called public knowledge. A less formal, let us call it a folk way, is called piracy. And here let me turn to Benjamin Franklin and the American situation. So my assertion is that Benjamin Franklin begins his adult life with a theft. He steals himself out of uh, his apprenticeship obligations to his older brother. He has a certificate of indentures that legally bind him to his brother. He gets in a fight with his brother. He breaks the indentures and flees to Philadelphia. If you read the autobiography, he's scared as he's going to Philadelphia that he will be arrested because he has, in fact, committed a crime. Now, the crime here is not just breaking the indentures, but um, the reason the indentures matter is that this is how you controlled uh, knowledge in an apprenticeship system. You controlled your apprentices. So the free movement of labor is the free movement of knowledge. And for Franklin to run away is to free printing knowledge, in his case, and to take it to Philadelphia against the wishes of his brother. So if Benjamin Franklin was the first American, he is also the first intellectual property pirate in our country. And in this case, um, if you think I'm only speaking of Franklin's youthful folly, let me add a second example from Franklin's maturity. So now it's 1781. Franklin is in Paris representing a new young nation. People keep coming to him with schemes to get immigrate to the United States out of European countries. One of them is a guy named Henry Royal. Royal wanted to, he's a calico printer from England. He wants to get a group of friends and himself into Philadelphia. They'll bring their machinery. They'll print calico for the colonies. And Franklin is in, interested in this. He encourages Royal. He writes to him saying that a special law might easily be obtained to give you a property for seven years in the useful inventions that you may introduce. So this is actually, this is, uh, you know, the Franklin papers are online now. And I think this is the unique moment of Franklin assenting to a patent. But this is what's called a patent of importation. Uh, you bring a new uh, technique into a country, and you get a limited a monopoly privilege uh, to um, use that technique. Uh, where you've brought it. So Franklin's saying, we could do this for you. We could give you a seven-year uh, patent of importation. Um, so Franklin is a pragmatist in a certain sense. He's not opposed to these short-term intellectual property rights. But the more important fact about Henry Royal's scheme is that the whole scheme amounts to trade piracy. Because 
uh, what uh, English law at that time forbade emigration of skilled laborers and forbade the transportation of the machinery that they might use. So. Um, Franklin is doing two things. He's one assenting to a short-term patent, but basically what he's doing is supporting, uh, in the spirit of that young runaway from, from Boston, um, he's supporting uh, the free movement of labor and ideas. Uh, in fact, in his letter to Royal, he describes English law, which forbids this, as tyrannical. He says, they make, such laws, they make a prison of England and confine men for no other crime than that of being useful and industrious. So to the English, the men, the movement of men and machinery out of the country is piracy. To Franklin, it was the diffusion of useful knowledge, brought about by underwriting the liberty of ideas with the liberty of citizens. So now, here a word is in order about the theory of knowledge that lies behind Franklin's ascent to piracy. For Benjamin Franklin and his generation, the true in science and the good in public policy were best discovered collectively. All individuals were thought to have partial views, and the word partial is meant in two senses. Your view on something is partial in that you have a vested interest, perhaps, and it's partial in that you are always located in one place. You can't see the whole thing, whereas the community can see more widely. So you have partial views. And thus, the sacrifice of individual interest was a key part of arriving at either the true or the good. Um, so the true and the good are both independent of persons. This is a notion that lies behind Benjamin Franklin's lifelong refusal to defend his own scientific claims. Good. 1777, there's a letter that nicely links this refusal to his patenting of inventions. He says, I have never entered into any controversy in defense of my opinions. If they are right, truth and experience will support them. If they're wrong, they should be rejected. Disputes are apt to sour one's temper. I have no private interest in the reception of my inventions in the world, having never uh, made nor proposed to make the least profit by any of them. So he links uh, his sense of how ideas and truth emerges to his own refusal to patent. So note how these things are linked up. A patent gives you an interest, a private interest, and that will make it harder to perform the sacrifice of self-interest that is central to the truth-seeking in science and to public virtue in politics. So let me end by saying, I mentioned earlier the republic of letters. And let me say, I mean this word republic here to echo the Roman category of law. In Romans, things like, in Roman law, things like harbors, bridges, ports were called public things, res publicae. The informal norms that arise uh, to replace trade piracy in the 18th century treated creative work as republican property in this sense. And they did so in the service of two ends. One was the progress of knowledge, the benefit of mankind, as the Dolan Court said. The other was to enable self-governance. Citizens need open access to knowledge if they wish to create the other republic, the political one. Thus, my argument is that 18th century trade piracy was, as embodied in Franklin's life and practice, was foundational to both American science and to American democracy.
plug this in proper. This one that's on top. Okay. I'm going to restrict my comments uh, basically uh, talking about the ways in which <clears throat> I want to ask the question and just sort of put it out here for further discussion. How do black American cultural practices of the past enable us to understand the cultural practices of today? And we're going to talk primarily about hip hop. Uh, and in some ways, um, you know, many of the ways in which we, there's some of the framing concepts for this particular conference, the idea of sort of dialogue with the past, this idea of remixing and appropriation, uh, communal ownership, the kind of creative chaos that I think many of us are very interested in, those are some of the defining aspects of hip-hop culture. And in fact, you can make a strong case that hip-hop culture has been and continues to be built on those principles. And I want to try to articulate some of that today, but I also want to link it back to black folk tradition, black folk tradition, black girl culture, and the ways in which those cultural practices continue to engage and inform the current practices that we uh, see today. I want to begin with uh, what I think is a, is a very interesting and revealing a uh, quote um, from a white folklorist uh, made at the turn of the 20th century uh, based on his study and observation of black folk and secular music. And in some ways, as I read this quote, many of the qualities of this quote, and he, again, he's talking about turn of the century oral music, oral culture, and black music, speak very much to what I think is, is sort of defining some of the current rhythms in hip hop culture today. Uh, this is from Newman White. Uh, he writes that the notes to the songs in my whole collection show nothing so clearly as the tendency of Negro folk song to pick up material from any source and by changing it or using it in all sorts of combinations to make it definitely its own. And when I think about this quote, one of the things that comes to mind is how this typifies some of the pioneering practices of some of the early creative uh, specialists in hip hop culture, namely uh, the DJ. And if you think about, for example, uh, here in the upper left hand corner, African Bambada, here we have Grandmaster Flash, and then here what many sort of characterize as sort of the, 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 the grandfather of hip-hop culture, and certainly hip-hop music, is DJ Cool Herc, who came to the United States, immigrated to the United States uh, from Jamaica, and brought many of those traditions and sort of African folklore traditions as people of African descent were sort of introduced to the new world, brought many of those uh, characteristics with him uh, when he migrated to New York City in the early 1970s. But basically, what, what's interesting here is, is how, for example, Bambada and even DJ Cool Herc, if you go back and you read a lot of the oral history and a lot of the sort of recollection of what these individuals and others who were part of that kind of creative environment and creative spirit, they were doing a lot of the things that this earlier quote sort of indicated, the way in which they were borrowing from the past, sort of recombining musical elements and musical styles in ways that no one, at least uh, up to that time, had really sort of dared to do. Bambada, for example, not only sort of referenced James Brown and soul music and funk music and parliament and all of those sort of more recent styles of music, but uh, Bambada also used uh, calypso. He used uh, rock music. He used classical music. He used a variety of musical styles and genres as the way to create a very interesting and dynamic sort of creative environment. But more importantly, I think a very dynamic and interesting kind of creative experience that sort of, again, is based on this notion of appropriation, sort of in dialogue with the past and other kinds of creative authors to create a notion of kind of communal authorship, which I think is one of the sort of defining aspects of hip hop culture, which I want to talk about a little bit later and more tomorrow in terms of the mixtape phenomenon and how this notion of communal authorship in some ways is inconsistent with the kind of corporate ethos that has over the years sort of gradually asserted more and more control over black oral culture and black popular music more specifically. Um, rap music, as, as many have argued, right, is rooted in the 20th century black oral traditions and cultural practices and lived experiences. And here many people sort of draw uh, connections between, for example, uh, the ways in which black oral culture 
going all the way back to the slaves, for example, and even before then, the sort of this notion of sort of hidden transcripts and the ways in which language is being used in subtle, sometimes very clandestine ways to engage in particular kinds of protest songs, protest politics, uh, which have become much more animated, much more vocal, much more visible in later generations, but the way in which an oral culture sort of created a space, created an environment, created a community in which people could sort of engage to dialogue with each other in ways that allow them to make sense of and even survive horrific conditions. We also know, for example, uh, that this black girl culture has a, a strong and sort of long history of humor and tradition, uh, thinking about going all the way back to uh, the tricksters and sort of the slave narratives, but even obviously thinking more so today, uh, not only hip hop culture, but black comedians. Uh, perhaps uh, one of the most uh, intriguing uh, sort of personalities in this context would be someone like Richard Pryor and the way in which he used language, the old tradition, uh, sort of harkening back right to the black preacher who has also been a very sort of prominent aspect in these sort of oral cultures in oral histories. Style has been, I think, a very important aspect of the way in which African Americans have used language, have used culture as a way to engage not only their surroundings and their environments, but also as a way to sort of create spaces of leisure, spaces of pleasure uh, for their enjoyment and satisfaction. And then social conditions and spatial mobility, this idea that, that black orality is always sort of connected to particular moments in history, particular social contexts and social environments. Uh, in the case of slave narratives and work songs, uh, obviously the rural plantations of the South, but even as blacks begin to sort of migrate and become much more of an urban-based population, how this too begins to influence and impact the way in which language and oral culture gets sort of passed down from one generation to the next. Um, I was sort of rereading in preparation for some of this a variety of things that various cultural historians have written about these issues. And I was sort of intrigued by Walter Ong's notion of post-literate orality. And basically what, what this is is sort of referring to the ways in which old traditions are revised and presented in a technologically upgraded environment. And for example, Trisha Rose in her book Black Noise uses this concept as well as other concepts to make sense of the, the oral tradition in hip hop music, the oral tradition in rap music. And specifically, she discusses how rap simultaneously makes technology oral in terms of the sort of innovative ways in which rap producers begin to use technology to sort of communicate, but also the way in which it technologizes orality as well. And specifically, this, this notion of, of sort of sampling, right, which has been a sort of constant presence throughout hip hop's history. And we're now talking 35, 40 years of hip hop culture, urban culture, and the ways in which it has evolved over the years. But sampling has and continues to be one of the mainstay sort of creative elements and forms of expression uh, within hip hop culture and the ways in which uh, rap producers began to use uh, samplers uh, in very sort of innovative and creative ways. And this idea that the digital sampler uh, is a sort of quintessential technology in rap music. And many have talked about the sort of fusing of these oral traditions with modern forms of technology and the ways in which that has enabled or emboldened a very sort of distinct sort of practice and a very distinct style in terms of black oral culture and black oral traditions. This, the, the idea that some have argued right, is that rap producers weren't the first, obviously, right, to sort of use samplers in terms of the, the creation uh, and the production of music, but the way in which they began to use samplers was, was, was quite innovative, and particularly the notion that they use uh, sampling not simply as a way uh, to, to accent a musical piece, right, as a sort of marginal or sort of complementary part of the music making process, but rather, right, as a sort of central part of the work that they were doing, a central part of the art that they were creating, in essence, using it to, to build new new kinds of musical experiences, in this sense, using samples uh, and sampling machine as sort of building blocks. And this is something, okay, something that I'm going to talk about a, a little bit later. So this idea of technology as a starting point for creating new music making and new musical experiences. 
Now, obviously, right, from, from the music industry perspective, sampling has a, a very different kind of image and a very different uh, uh, kind of meaning. So from the industry perspective, uh, sort of the ongoing sort of critiques of rap producers, the, the idea even that this is not even music, the idea that this is a sort of primitive style of sort of creation, and in some ways, right, that it lacks creativity. Uh, obviously, also this idea of theft, this idea of copyright infringement, and the notion that, that, that sampling in rap music can either only be an economic transaction at best, that is getting copyright approval to use certain beats, or legal transgression at worst. And then also the sort of flip side here in terms of how uh, the, the hip hop community thinks about uh, sampling. And I'll just go through these really fast. This idea of sort of it being, a, again, a sort of creative process, a very dynamic process. This idea of sort of sound theory, which I think is very interesting, and a sort of complex form of sound organization. I'll elaborate on this later. Uh, please, hopefully, I get a chance to talk about the Bomb Squad and this whole notion of organized, squad, uh, organized noise. The Bomb Squad, right, is the sort of rap production team uh, that sort of built Public Enemy into a kind of global and international uh, kind of entity. And the ways in which they took sound and sound mixing and sound recording and likened it to sort of building a sonic wall and doing some very innovative and creative things with technology that way. This idea of sort of, if you go back and read some of the, the old school DJs and how they talk about the ways in which they would dig through their parents' crates, getting blues music, jazz music, soul music, a kind of archaeological find, digging for beats and recreating uh, new sounds. This idea of a homage to the past uh, and the way in which uh, rappers and hip-hop producers have inserted the past into the present, even as they are creating and forging new sort of creative frontiers. Um, don't have a lot of time here, but this idea historically of black music as participatory culture, and historians of black music have talked about the ways in which, for African Americans at least, music has long been perceived as a participant activity. This is perhaps most famously recognized in the sort of call and response qualities and aspects of the black world tradition, tradition, slave songs, work songs, out in the fields, leaders sort of, you know, sort of marching their troops through the field. Also the ways in which black preachers and MCs today rock the mic. This idea, again, of sort of calling and responding and engaging the audience to be as, as much involved in the creative process as, as the maker of music itself. I'm going to move through this really, really fast. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, in my paper tomorrow I'll be talking about the whole mixtape phenomenon and this whole notion of mixtape as sort of modern day forms of kind of underground radio and how it represents in some ways a lot of the, the kinds of legacies that I'm talking about here. Um, and, and many sort of, uh, sort of contemporary historians of blues talk about the ways in which blues musicians and blues artists, there was never this sense that anyone owned the blues, but rather that the blues was part of a kind of communal experience and something that was a sort of shared experience and the ways in which that too is, is very much a byproduct and an extension of this black oil tradition. I don't have a lot of time here, so maybe it'll come up in, in the conversation, but the central conflict in all of this in terms of particularly the emergence of the blues in the early parts of the 20th century, and even in rap music today, is this, this, this sort of tension between commercialization and technology. Um, and I have absolutely no time to go through these slides. Eight minutes, eight minutes go by much faster than you would ever uh, think it might. Um, but this, this idea that, that, that technology is something that has enabled rather than destroyed these sort of regional accents in terms of blues. We talk about the Mississippi blues. We talk about the Chicago blues, the Texas blues. And obviously, in terms of the way in which technology has enlarged rap music and hip hop culture, so we can talk about East Coast, West Coast, and the Dirty South. And then, so in this sense, how regional accents and old traditions based in these particular regional experiences are sort of born out and sort of live in very dynamic ways. So the technology is not something that determines or destroys oral tradition and folk tradition, but in some ways enables and sort of preserves and extends those traditions.
uh, is this original or a sample? So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Thank you, for, uh, 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 panelists, for very stimulating and much too abbreviated talks. Uh, I'm more responsible than the speaker, so blame me. Uh, but I think it should make for a lively discussion. I want to first ask our panelists, we're going to compress our panelist time a little bit so we have an adequate time for the audience. But I'd like to take the next few minutes to let the panelists uh, respond to one another, or perhaps give them an opportunity to make one final point that they didn't quite have time to make when they were speaking to us. Let, let's start with, with uh, Tom Pettit. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I, I was talking African, in my terms, African-American vernacular culture entered this Gutenberg world very, very late. Uh, the mixing, the remixing, the sampling, the, the communal, the communal aspect of the tradition continued deep into the 20th century. Uh, and then with the new technology, we get the same thing happening again, only on a, in a different way, on a different level. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if there was at all such a parenthesis. Was there a, was there a brief period in the 1930s or the 1940s, where the blues, for example, where African-American music uh, was restricted, where, there, where one man wrote a new song and that was his song, uh, and, and others, others were not supposed to sing it or were to sing it, uh, acknowledging it as his. Was, was there a time when the songs were fixed and there was this, this one song, it was by this person, other persons performed it as it was written, acknowledging the, uh, the ownership of that person? Was there a brief time like um, it's an interesting question. Um, it, I guess the, the answer may be unsatisfactory, sort of, sort of yes and no. Um, and, and what I mean by that uh, specifically is that, that prior to the blues, most historians, when they talk about the black oral tradition and how that was translated through African-American musical forms, slave songs, gospel, um, work songs, uh, field hollers, and things of that sort, that, that these were largely sort of, sort of communities that were sort of participating in, in the whole music making process, uh, and, and that there was no sort of one individual that, that, that stood out. What makes the blues sort of interesting in, in this particular moment is precisely some of what, what you're discussing, is that the, the, if you think of sort of the, the sort of quintessential image of the blues artist, right, with the guitar and sort of standing sort of out front, this idea that for the first time in sort of black American musical form, you begin to have this kind of individualization of the, of the way in which black popular music gets, gets expressed. But even within, and, and obviously, right, in terms of the discovery of the blues and sort of the recording and the sort of commercialization of the blues, all of the issues that, that, that we're seeing rehearsed again in terms of hip hop and rap music were, were played out then in some very interesting and dynamic ways. But yet still, I think amongst blues artists, um, you know, there was never this, this sense that there, that there was complete ownership, this, this notion of sort of fixity, and that these were always uh, sort of musical expressions and forms that were sort of recreated, elaborated upon, and performed uh, in, in a variety of ways uh, that, that simply sort of opened it up to a kind of communal experience and a sort of sharing, really, a, a kind of participatory culture in terms of what was happening in ways that may not necessarily have been consistent with the kinds of industrial regimes that were beginning to express greater and greater control over black oral culture. I was thinking that the encounter with the record industry must have been quite traumatic uh, for performers 
uh, the, way, the way the record companies, well, record companies sent executives out into the field and recorded blues singers, uh, came home, published those blues as race records, and then suddenly, but then suddenly those songs, they become part of the, the regular system. And I suppose there, are, there, are, there is copyright, the one, the one company will then own that song. Uh, I, I'm, I'm aware of, also aware of, uh, there's a parallel development in, in, in white uh, folk song tradition in America. The Appalachian folk songs were sung, handed on, changed, uh, and then it seems as if the, the first folk singer who recorded a song could claim copyright on that song. It became, became suddenly their song. As if so, so folk music is entering this, this world of the fixed text, the old, the old text, the, uh, the autonomous text. And now we're seeing them escaping from it again. Well, clearly, clearly, one topic we're going to come back to again and again is the uh, complexity of what we mean by the text, what the text is, whether it's been it's been destabilized maybe forever. And I, I think this, these comments suggest an aspect of that problem. Lewis, I wonder if you would like to make a, a couple of quick comments before we turn it to the audience. I, I have one. Quick comment of uh, just something that occurs to me as I listen to Craig, and then I have a quick question for Tom. Um, so I'm thinking about trickster figures, having written a book on this. Uh, and one of the definitions of the trickster figures, these are the sacred boundary crossers. They tend to appear where things are ambiguous. And one of my favorite stories is in the Hindu tradition, Krishna is supposed to not steal the butter from the larder, and his mother comes home, and he has, of course, stolen it. And he denies this, and, but one of his uh, formulations in his denial, he says, well, mother, doesn't everything in the house belong to us? <laughs> so uh, what the trickster does is to call into question the categories by which you have organized your world. And so uh, behind my presentation is, is one of the problems is, should we define what Franklin does as piracy or as uh, opening up ideas? And uh, in a way, the innovative act here is to call into question the, the distinction. Um, so this goes on in all these realms. My question for Tom, I, I wondered as you talked about whether this Gutenberg parenthesis uh, works in the same way in science as it does in um, literary texts. You have, you have 30 seconds to answer that question. 29, 28. <laughs> Maybe we can no, leave that as a question. It's beyond, beyond my competence, I think. Too. Uh, but well, I, pres I presume there. Yeah. Surely there was a there was a there was a time when um, I, I guess knowledge, behind knowledge it, knowledge became owned by someone. Yeah, but I mean the protocol in science is that you get your reputation by priority more than by having a fixed text. I mean, I was thinking about Franklin, for example, that the print culture for Franklin uh, is part of an open discourse. It's not really about. Uh, fixing your ideas. It's an ongoing discussion. And, and so I think it works differently in the scientific community than it does in the literary community. Uh, you know, it, it strikes me that it would be helpful if this panelist would move over one seat so that all of you can be seen e equally by, the, Craig is sort of hidden behind the podium here. And you can also distribute the microphones more effectively. Oh, really? Yeah. All right. I apologize. <laughs> we'll stay crammed together here. Uh, I, I, uh, we've spent less time with the panel, but I think there will be a compensation. Uh, we now open our discussion to comments from the audience. What I, there are two microphones on either side. Please come forward. Because we're recording this, please identify yourselves. Uh, keep your comments. Uh, they can be questions or comments, but keep them as succinct as you can manage. This is advice I also urge upon our panelists. 
Hi, my name is Ron Robinson uh, from UC Santa Barbara, and uh, Professor Thumber and uh, your old student, Alan Liu, uh, gives his best. Um, I, I want to make a couple of comments and then uh, pose a question. And I'm really grateful, um, Professor Watkins, for what, you're, what you just uh, spoke to uh, with regards to the role of hip hop um, in the context where we're living in today um, has been thoroughly stigmatized. Uh, rappers are being um, uh, scapegoated. And uh, this is, falls within a pattern in terms of uh, African Americans uh, uh, being stigmatized in the culture. And um, so I think it's important for us to look at how um, piracy versus expropriation. Black culture and black music has been expropriated and there's not been compensation given forever. I mean, this goes back back to Tin Pan Alley and all the rest of the stuff. And so uh, I, I would like for, for Professor Watkins to please speak to the issue of the, the, the importance of the epistemological component to uh, um, uh, black intellectual uh, capabilities with regards to this whole issue because of the stigma of black folks being supposedly intellectually inferior. And this is important for us to be able to make this association in terms of the importance of where we stand today in terms of the technology and the culture and the role of hip hop and having been very much responsible for uh, pushing things forward. No, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an important comment. You know, one of the things that I try to, um, to try to articulate, for example, in my, in my most recent book, um, Hip Hop Matters, and something I'll, I'll talk a bit more about tomorrow, is this, this idea of sort of what I call the digital underground and, and the ways in which um, the use of digital technology, the ways, the ways in which um, hip hop heads, uh, that is hip hop aficionados, are using new media to sort of create a whole sort of underground world uh, that's very different from what we might see in terms of the more visible corporate forms of hip hop. But, um, but, but, in, but in this regard, and I think what, um, what, what, what your comment alludes to are the sort of creative and innovative ways in which um, I mean, I think the sort of narrative is, is that African Americans aren't, uh, you know, very actively involved in this sort of dynamic moment in terms of what, what's happening with the media, and 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 in fact, you know, the, the very reverse should and could be argued. Um, you know, I'm always sort of thrilled when I get a chance to to sort of speak with or, or share a panel with someone like Chuck D, for example, with Public Enemy, and and many of the things that are happening in the music industry today, Chuck D was predicting these things ten years ago, uh, and the ways in which he began to start using digital technology as a way to engage. Uh, you know, new publics, sort of thinking about consumers beyond the idea of consumers and audiences and thinking of them as sort of participating in the music making process. That was part of the, the dilemma that he had with, with his corporate label Def Jam back in the late 1990s was the fact that he wanted to become more active on the technology front and less uh, sort of beholden to the sort of traditional models. But intellectually, uh, Chuck, Chuck was sort of well ahead of where the music industry was back then. And, ha and, and the truth is they're still trying to catch up to many of the things that he predicted would happen with music as a result of peer-to-peer -peer technology, as a result of new media, as a, way, as a result of the ways in which young people around the world are engaging in using technology. So in this sense, you know, and he argues this as well, that rap producers were very much um, sort of uh, on the cutting edge in terms of the use of technology, the ways in which they were applying it in very innovative ways. Question here. Yes, thank you. Uh, I'm Mark Willis from Wright State University in Ohio, and I have a question for Craig and I guess also for Thomas. Uh, Craig, I was, I was surprised to hear the name of Walter Ong raised in a context like this, and I may be showing my age of, of saying that I remember a time when mentioning Walter Ong created firestorms at academic conferences. Uh, it's my impression that, or it's my, my sense from him, 
that he would believe that there would be a very definite parenthesis between uh, the kind of uh, Gutenberg time and the post-Gutenberg time that Thomas mentioned. And, and my question for you is, do you think his notion of, is his po notion of post-literate orality, um, is this mic still on? Anyway, do you think his notion of that is, is it something distinctly different from what literacy is? Or do you think uh, the, the kind of orality you're talking about is really a hybrid kind of form that blends both literacy and orality? And, and so for Thomas, my question, I guess, is, is that, that uh, closing parenthesis really as definite as, as Thomas thinks? Um, I, I guess I, I, I would agree more, more with the latter. Um, I think a sort of separate, separate question that I have about suggesting that I think the orthodoxy is the first thing we do. Um, you know, people who have sort of tried to, to sort of write about these issues and this sort of relationship between technology and black oral culture and black oral traditions. And I was drawing that primarily from, from Trisha Rhodes' book, uh, Black Noise. Um, and she doesn't uh, attempt to sort of use without sort of engaging in, in a sort of critique of Ong's uh, sort, of, sort of framework. But, but I think what she attempts to suggest and what I was attempting to suggest as well are the ways in which um, sort of older forms of, of sort of oral culture and, and, and the ways in which they get sort of intertwined with technology and get rearticulated and, and revised in ways that, um, that in some ways are, are much more dynamic, much more interactive uh, than perhaps, uh, you know, some of those earlier notions or frameworks might, might suggest. But, but this idea between oral, written, and the ways in which we begin to see how hip hop begins to sort of in, in, interact with technology. I think, with some, I, I think that's part of what I was trying to, trying to allude to um, without necessarily trying to use that as a sort of blanket or unproblematic framework for thinking about what's, what's happening here. Thank you, and I would add to that that uh, my use of the parenthesis uh, image uh, is a good starting point, but as soon as one's established that, one needs to play around with it. Uh, and as I've already said, that uh, in any one culture, uh, the parenthesis will be in different positions, different dates, depending on what subculture one's talking about or what cultural system one's talking about. The brackets will be at one date for poetry, at another date for theater, at another date for popular culture, and so on. And then in addition to that, uh, in the full text of my paper, uh, I've talked about us being at the present well, both at the present time we are, and back in 1600 Shakespeare and company were, in the midst of a broad and fuzzy parenthesis. I couldn't reproduce that on my diagram because things disappeared behind my, behind my moons. I, I couldn't do things that shone through. The, it is the liminal area. It's the liminal. They look, they look like moons, and they were moons when they started off. Uh, it's a, it's a, a liminal area between the within and the without is the most exciting place. That's where Shakespeare did most of his work. That's where all the exciting materials coming from in, in, hip, in hip hop culture. Uh, and I associate, personally, I associate uh, Walter Ong with the notion of, well, back in the earlier half, in the earlier parenthesis, where I'm more familiar with what's going on, I, I associate Ong with a residual orality uh, in culture, that ev even in the learned culture, there was a very substantial oral element remaining uh, in the use of rhetoric, the, 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 the oral nature of even uh, mainstream Elizabethan, Elizabethan culture. Uh, so it's very much, there's very much a mixture going on in both places. My, my, my bracket should be broad and fuzzy. Question. 
Hi, I'm Michelle Thorne from uh, Holyoke College. Um, I guess my question goes to Mr. Petit and Mr. Welkin's first comment about when can you maybe place the parentheses or when, when is a medium owned or when can you place copyright on the, on the medium. And it's just kind of a thought that I've, I've been playing around with is when the technology enables that form to be fixed, when technology enables reproduction. So in the sense, um, the Gutenberg press, you know, fixed text or whatever that means, the phonograph fixed sound. We can think of maybe photography and film as fixing visual images and kind of the, um, how, how the technical capabilities allowed maybe our social constructs to come after that, you know, the sense of authorship, the sense of originality in reaction to the ability to record and reproduce. And I was wondering if maybe that might help or maybe we've had thoughts on that. Thank you. Yes, it, cer it certainly does. Uh, the new technology, it, it's not called the Gutenberg printers for nothing, it is because uh, the, the, the printing press produces fixed texts, uh, but at, at each stage there are, there are gradual transitions. There was a period when uh, even printed texts were very unstable, uh, when there were reprints that didn't reproduce the original. Uh, there were moments when Shakespeare's plays were being printed. Uh, if someone spotted a mistake, they'd stop the machine. Uh, correct the mistake and start the machine again, so that even the same imprint of a Shakespeare play uh, has variations. And one can make a career out of spotting the differences between the, uh, uh, the, the, co the copy uh, in an American library and the copy in an Oxford library. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's a gradual process. Yes, and, and, and the, the, the technology enables that, that to happen uh, at, at, at both extremes. Once upon a time, performance was improvised, then it was memorized, uh, then it was written down, and it was written down more or less strictly, and there were notions of whether... Of, I, I had a reference to a, a, po a poem by Chaucer who roundly curses his scribe uh, for not copying his poems correctly, and poor old Chaucer had to go over them with a pencil and, and correct them. So even, 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 when you have a, even when you have script, script gradually impresses the, the idea of a fixed text. And I'm sure the same happens, I'm sure the same happens with print. And at the other end, I presume that the introduction of new technology has gradually given the impression we can change things, we can do it. It's easier now, it'll take time as each new technology is introduced. Uh, uh, Tom's comments make, make the, historic, the historian in me uh, waken the historian in me irresistibly. Uh, these matters are in fact dramatized in Don Quixote. And those of you who uh, have not read that novel, I, I much urge it as an instructive meditation on a moment of median transition. But in the second part of the Quixote, one of the crucial events has Don Quixote visiting a printing press in which he sees the processes whereby part one of Don Quixote has been published and have made him famous. And he's very angry about this because he is, in some sense, the character in the novel has been captured by the identity that was fixed in the printed material. And he, there's an, in, in the third, second and third chapters of the second part of Don Quixote, there is an elaborate conversation amongst the central characters about the nature of printed texts, how they are capable of lying, how they're capable of distorting things, and how errors of the printer can introduce new forms of corruption. So it's a very early meditation at the moment when I I suppose we might say the parenthesis is, is, is beginning to, uh, the first part of the parenthesis is beginning, is beginning to put up its bracket when this discussion is going on in one of our, in one of our classic texts. My name is Peter Walsh. Um, when I was listening to the panel, the thing that, uh, and I have had a classical education, so one of the first things that struck me about the panel was the question of ancient texts 
which come out of mysterious, possibly oral traditions, um, at some point become written down. Um, and actually, the manuscript tradition, well before printing, becomes very standardized, very accurate. And the, th the thing which struck me is at a point in that process, it becomes uh, important to ascribe those texts to an author. So you get Homer created in some sense. And you get uh, St. John the Divine and the authors of the New Testament. Um, and in fact, there's whole biographies invented for these people, which may or may not have anything to do with historical events. Um, and you also get anonymous texts ascribed to historical figures improperly. And my question for the panel is, is there an impulse to authorship, to individual creativity, which becomes important to attach to a creation uh, which can be collectively created, but for some, for some reason it seems to me that there is a impulse to individual authorship that uh, appears at a certain point in the history of a text. Classical. That's a, it's a very interesting perspective in the sense that uh, my, my reply has got to be, it's all happened twice. There was a, in the first instance, without the advantage of printing, which is very an interesting uh, complication, in the sense, I think classical culture went through a Gutenberg phase without the technology, in the sense that classical culture also, there they came a moment when it felt necessary and proper to associate names with text. Uh, there was a, there was a, mo a moment of, uh, of, of canonization uh, of establishing a canon of respectable classical texts uh, which were to be read in schools and uh, in that case the text should be fixed. We fixed the text through manuscripts and careful manuscript copying. We associated those works with particular authors. There was, there was a kind of uh, a low grade, uh, a Gutenberg light, if you like, in the, in the uh, classical period and then it drifted again during the Middle Ages when people started writing uh, accounts of Troy which sort of replaced Homer as the uh, the authoritative idea, and there were other other stories about about uh, about Troy and classical uh, classical narratives, uh, and then it happened. Well, it happened again at, at the Renaissance. It started again at the Renaissance. There was a, a renew a, a renewed I'll call it a renewed Gutenberg tendency with the Renaissance that uh, the, the move towards autonomous texts, authored texts, named texts, fixed texts. We did it again. It's a it's a way of you. I have one thing to say about this. Um, I think often this question, um, behind it lies a puzzle for me about what exactly an individual is or what exactly the self is. And uh, I'm very fond of a quote that um, uh, Martha Woodmansey dug up of Goethe's where he says, uh, you know, what am I? Everything I've written I've taken from other people, from children and wise folks, from fools and people I met on the street. At the end he says, I am, my, I am a collective being whose name is Goethe. And um, so that's a wonderful image of a different kind of, uh, of self. You can ascribe it to an individual, but then you have to say what is an individual. And I think sometimes that the name Homer um, isn't quite an individual in the way we think of an individual. It's not like the name Emerson. <laughs> it's a different kind of, of, of personage. And, um, I don't know for sure that we know what it means uh, if in the fourth century BC they said Homer wrote this, uh, that that sentence may have a different uh, uh, weight than our saying Emerson wrote self-reliance. You, you know, in terms of the black oral tradition, I don't know if I got a chance to, to get to the slide, but one of the questions that I ask is, 
you know, this, this idea of authorship and this idea of, of, of ownership and, and, and can you truly own a kind of oral tradition that is as rich and dynamic as, as, as black oral culture is. And, and clearly, right, that's, that's what the, the, the kind, of, kind of corporate media entities have, have attempted to do. And that's, that's part of that sort of essential conflict that, that, that I alluded to. Uh, because you have a sort of a historical and sort of traditional set of practices that in some ways have operated outside of those kind of powerful corridors uh, throughout the, the, the middle to the latter part of the 20th century that begins to become more and more a part of the kind of corporate media structure, particularly in terms of the, the recording of popular music. But, but, but there is still this, this notion, right, that, 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 that black style and that, and that the sort of aesthetics and the sort of creative processes and practices that are, that are sort of helped to sort of build those traditions you know, can, 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 can a corporation truly own that? And in particular, uh, you know, to be frank, you know, can a white-owned or dominated corporation own black cultural practice and black oral traditions? And I think that has been the reason why a lot of these sort of underground traditions that we see have been so vital, have been so vibrant, because it's a way of resisting and sort of opposing the notion uh, that there is a sort of single that form of authorship, a sort of single kind of control of what many people see as a kind of shared communal sort of experience and lived experience. This is a question about appropriation, the appropriation of black materials by white musicians. I, I just did that because we, we, we have to get it on the record, the question off the mic. Do you, you want to comment on that? Was, was, it, a, was it a question? It was an observation, I guess. There are certainly attempts to appropriate the material of, of, of black I wonder if it's, it's not relevant to talk about the, uh, the, the blues of Robert Johnson in the sense that uh, there is a name associated with some songs. Uh, the songs have traditional roots, but there comes a moment when these are the, the blues of Robert Johnson, uh, and they are, they are issued as such on records back then, on CDs now, and they are advertised as being Robert Johnson. And then one says, do these songs, are they, are they original songs? Are they derivative songs? And I'm, I'm, vague, well, I'm, I'm aware, I know there has been surely a massive court case about the um, copyright uh, and the, the royalties on the uh, uh, sales of, of the blues of Robert Johnson among his descendants. Uh, but it's, it's become a major issue for the courts as to who exactly owns uh, those songs. Clearly questions of ownership and identity are going to recur in our conference. Question here. Hi, I'm Sam Halpert from Harvard College. Uh, this, this goes back to uh, the discussion that you were having just a moment ago about the tendency towards um, individual attribution of texts and the idea that there was a, a pre-Gutenberg Gutenberg. Um, I was down here earlier and I was going to say something like that and you stole a good deal of my thunder. Um, so I guess at this point, uh, my question is uh, sort of what do you think of the idea um, that that this tendency towards individual attribution is is sort of much larger than than the idea behind authorship. Um, that I mean, author comes from auctoritas, and you're just referring to an authority. And that we've all, humans have always had a tendency to collect um, a philosophy or a group of ideas around an, an individual in the same way that you can look at um, gods as uh, the per, uh, the personification of a particular outlook on life or a particular philosophy towards life. You can, um, you know, uh, Odysseus is the champion of Athena and he has a particular outlook towards life and Achilles has another outlook towards life that are uh, collected around these, these uh, collective beings whose name 
is, uh, you know, whoever, and that uh, the tendency needing needing a person to point to for these texts is in uh, the same way needing uh, needing a person around whom uh, these ideas can sort of be conceived of um, internally. I don't know. That's not really a question, which is why I was walking back well, and forth. But the mic look, was empty. Look, well, one thing you're saying, I mean, I, I'll give the panel a chance to sort of group, regroup because, because it's a complicated question. But one, one thing that you're talking about is, how, is, is this uh, uh, problematic impulse we have to, to, uh, to, to attribute particular uh, groups of ideas to a single individual. But we can complicate the idea by recognizing that we, it's certainly possible to acknowledge that a particular performer or spokesman is a carrier or an, or, or an embodiment of a collaborative t energy. That is to say, although the performer may, may, art may embody the ideas uh, in a partly distinctive and individual way, there's still the expectation on the audience's part in many, in many um, cultural environments that the performer is still nonetheless a kind of representative of a community. So the, in other words, I think we oversimplify when we try to think about uh, a very sharp dichotomy between the collaborative on the one side and the individual and creative on the other side. And, and maybe, in fact, that is a defect of what we might think of as the Gutenberg dispensation, that in fact, even in the, inside the parenthesis, to problematize this notion even further, it's obviously the case that people we acknowledge as novelists or poets are constantly engaged in activities that we might give the label sampling to, although literary scholars have more respectable terms like allusion and reference and so forth. But it's often the very same kind of thing. Yeah, could I just respond in the sense that I don't think I agree it's a human constant this need to attribute a given work or text to a particular individual who composed it. I think it comes and goes uh, in response to, well, I, uh, clearly not simply technology, but to social cultural changes. There, there are phases uh, in cultural history when it does seem to be necessary or needed, this, this need to associate a work with a name. Uh, when Shakespeare's plays were first published, they were published, uh, this is, well, Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, as performed by the Lord Chamberlain, his servants, uh, at Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, no mention of Shakespeare. Shakespeare's plays were published anonymously. He was, his, Shakespeare's name was not associated with published versions of his plays until halfway through his career. Something, something happened in the world of the theatre. They were published and they were attributed to the performers. This is when you go to the shop and buy this play, you are buying this play as you may have seen it performed by, as you saw it on this channel, as you saw it performed by this particular group of players at this theater, not by this author. But it comes, it, it can be, you can see it happening within a matter of years. There's a slow change and more and more the plays are published as being by this author. But it, it's, a, it's a definite shift. Tom, com could you complicate that a little bit by talking about other forms of expression that, that, well, that were, yes. were at that well, same exactly. time identified? Exactly. Shakespeare's non-dramatic works were published as by Shakespeare. You went to a bookshop and you bought, uh, you bought um, Troilus and Crusader. I beg your pardon, you, you bought The Rape of Lucrece or, or Venus and Adonis uh, or Shakespeare's sonnets. Shakespeare's sonnets were published as Shakespeare's sonnets. That was the title of them. Uh, non-dramatic works were part of literature. That, that particular system, they, they call it poetry. Uh, but in that system, that system had entered the parenthesis 
uh, and so works belonged to authors, were attributed to what, and that, that was a clear, that, that need was felt for poetry, but not for plays. Plays were part of a popular carnivalesque entertainment business uh, where you didn't really, you didn't really worry who the authors were. It's, it's, it's very much like modern, modern uh, television and modern, and modern series. If you, uh, can, can you name the authors, the script writers of your, of your favorite TV series? Well, some uh, of us can, Tom. <laughs> you fan. But, but it does raise the question about, you know, how do we think about authorship? Do we think about it in terms of the sort of, you know, single individual entity, or do we think about it as more of a kind of collaborative process? And, and, and oftentimes, I mean, I wonder to what extent are we, are we talking about a, a specifically Western notion of, of authorship and creativity, and, and to what extent might there be other ways of thinking about the ways in which, um, you know, art, cultural content, creative content gets ex expressed and, and, and produced? It comes and goes. And just two sentences. You know, behind this for me also lies the problem of recompense. How, how does a creative person uh, pay the rent and get his or her teeth fixed? And in a system where uh, your royalties have to come because you have a copyright and the copyright is assigned to you as an individual, this also makes you into an individual author. Um, and there are many systems of recompense. I wonder in this, your Shakespeare story if, if one thing that's happening in the years of his life isn't that uh, the, the economics of the theater are changing. There's clearly, clearly something going on. Uh, in response to another point, though, uh, in Shakespeare's time, about half of all plays were collaborative works. There were teams of authors. They agreed on a subject. They, they wrote a synopsis of the play. Uh, they divided into scenes, and they worked out who was best at the comic scenes, who was best at the tragic scenes. They distributed the scenes among them, went home and wrote them, come back and join them up, and sold them to the, the players. And that, that's, that's, the, that's the, the financial aspect. Uh, there was no copyright. Uh, a, an author made his money by writing a play, and he sold it to the players, which and it thereafter belonged to the players and not to him. You know, there's an infamous there's an infamous essay uh, by, by by the by, by the late great liter, uh, British literary critic William Emson, must be 50 years old or older now, that uh, uh, speculates about Shakespeare in a in a sort of uh, editorial conference with his collaborators. But at the time this essay came out, of course, we were deeply in, in inside that parentheses that Tom has been talking about. And I remember as, an, as a graduate student hearing Elizabethan scholars rage against this guy Emson for distorting the nature of, 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 of theater and denigrating Shakespeare by implying that he collaborated with other, with, with other authors. It's a mark of how far we've come that there are now many books about Shakespeare that actually deals explicitly with the way in which his, his, his texts reflect the collaboration of others. Final question. Yes, uh, thank you all for your presentations. Um, my name is Ramesh Srinivasan. Um, I'm an assistant professor at um, the University of California, Los Angeles. Um, what I wanted to ask was sort of a larger scale question, which is, um, you know, we've sort of speculated on some of the um, sort of positive and creative potentials of mixing and remixing and potentially the creation of a kind of cultural commons that's about global knowledge sharing that's occurring. But um, at the same time, we also see um, certain studies that are, sh that are showing that maybe 50% of the people in this world have ready or even somewhat uh, available access to various new media and digital technologies that can allow them to access, remix, localize, and so on. Um, and I was wondering if you guys could speculate a little bit about the, the actual democratizing potential of these media and these infrastructures, given that there's a significant correlation 
to certain kind of class levels and cultural levels themselves. So, thank you. You know, I think you've said it. I, I, <laughs> I think often in these meetings, or those of us who are at the Berkman Center sit around thinking this is the new world, but there is, it isn't. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the question that you're asking is, is, is certainly a, a pivotal question, and that is, you know, you know, to what extent um, is the landscape that we're talking about, you know, who all participates in, in, in right. this environment and in this moment? And, and, you know, the statistics show that, uh, you know, globally, right, participation is, is certainly limited in terms of who's sort of actively involved uh, in, in the new media landscape. Um, but but even, even having said that, though, I, I, I do think that, you know, cultures that, and communities that, that once may have been marginal are figuring out and struggling for ways to participate and to become more actively involved, sort of understanding and recognizing the need for that. Um, you know, this this whole, whole idea of sort of something that, that I'll be talking about tomorrow, the idea of sort of mixtapes is sort of underground radio and a way of sort of challenging the kind of corporate hegemony that is in some way sort of restricted the kind of creative flow and sort of expressions, let's say, for example, within, within popular music or rap music more precisely, and this idea that it has become a kind of, you know, democratizing sort of sphere and space that opens up greater opportunity for more voices, more diversity of perspectives, more diversity of styles, uh, traditions, and expressions. And in that sense, um, and, 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 and the producers in this environment don't necessarily use that language to talk about it, but I, I do think that that's the kind of world and that's the kind of environment that they're helping to create. In other words, they don't see themselves as sort of fighting for you know, a more democratic sphere, a more democratic public sphere, but the very act of what they're doing and the fact that they've gone underground and when you look and see what they're doing underground, that's exactly the kind of world and kind of space that they're building. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at one of my diagrams and I think I've got to be pessimistic the further we go forward, the further we're going into the past. Ten years ago, we were in 1610. We're now in 1580. <laughs> uh, and in 20 years, we'll be in the 1550s. I think that the freedom you sense now is the freedom of the breakdown of a system. Uh, there's a moment within, within the parenthesis, there is chaos and opportunity. I think new injustices will emerge in the future, just as the distant past had other injustices. And the only point is that those injustices are injustices that are actually very collective in the sense that, the, that those types of local knowledges and local experiences and local forms of cultural production are not, in, not you know, intervening in all our sort of collective social capital. So. I, I think this is a very helpful comment, and my Thank hope you. is that it sounds a theme we, to which we will return in our subsequent discourse. I'd like to thank the panelists and thank the audience. So I am told that if people who are going to the next breakout session will gather around the reg desk, people can help escort you to relevant rooms, uh, since this is a kind of maze-like campus and we're scattered.